Amen. What's up, Crossroads? How we doing? I do not believe you at all. How are we doing? By the way, you don't have to fake it. If you're having a bad day, you can yell out bad. That's okay. The answer is not automatically good. For those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Brandon Hurth. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I'd love to just shake your hand, get to know a little bit of your story sometime. So come up today. Come up anytime that you see me, really. I don't care if we're at Starbucks. Just come up, introduce yourself. Would love to get to know you. Um, the other thing, too, is if you're new here, we've been traveling through a new series that we're doing called The Gospel in Pictures. We've explained it a few times, but really what it is is just saying that the gospel is bigger than just these truths that we memorized as kids. The gospel, the good news of God's salvation is something that he gives us tons of pictures and metaphors, things in everyday life that we can look to and see how amazing he is. And really that's our hope is one that we're going to walk away from this series seeing more and more and more how amazing God is. But two also seeing how free he has set us. As Christians, we should be the most free people on the planet, just willing to dive in to expose the fact that we don't have it all figured out, that we have mistakes and sin in our lives because we have a God who is the ultimate hero. There's only one hero and it's him. And we have the opportunity where God has actually given us Christ's perfection in exchange for our perfection. It's why Christians, we should be just the least hypocritical people. So, turn with me. That's a different sermon. I'm not going to go there. Turn with me to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. If that sounds familiar to you, that's probably because Rod preached it a couple weeks ago. The exact same text. I uh, walked into Crossroads. I didn't realize that. I walked in late last week, sat down, and I was like, all right, guys, I think I figured it out. I'm going to preach Genesis 3. And they all just kind of stared at me. And I was like, what happened? And then it just kind of slowly dawned on me that I just revealed to the entire staff that I had skipped church a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I'm a pastor, not a saint, guys. Come on. Uh, I decided, though, to proceed. We're going to go ahead and we're still going to preach Genesis 3, not because I feel like I can do a better job than Rod. That's crazy. I listened to the podcast. His sermon is phenomenal. But because I thought, how cool would it be for us actually to look at the same text again and see a completely different gospel picture in it? And really, Genesis 3 is full of 20 different pictures in there. We've got the God who's going to come, the seed, the Messiah who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. We have homelessness like Rod preached. We see Jesus who fulfills the temptation of Adam and Eve, except for he doesn't fall. They're in the garden, he's in the desert, and yet he doesn't stumble. We see the God who moves us from one garden to another garden. There's tons and tons of them, but today we're going to look at the picture of the God who covers our shame. We're going to look at shame today. And I know what you're thinking, and it's not true. This is not because the last time I was up here, I preached an entire sermon with my fly down. <laughs> Although... Those of you who are laughing know that is also true. You know, like, okay. We were in the round last time. I couldn't even do that. Oh, embarrassing. We're going to look at shame for a different reason. We're going to look at shame because I think that we have an epidemic in our country with shame. It's everywhere we look. In fact, let's just pop the bubble right away here. 
Every one of us in this room have shame. Every one of us in this room have areas in our life where we experience this. Famous shame researcher Brene Brown, some of you guys know her from her TED Talks, she says it this way, we all have shame. Shame is universal. It's one of the most primitive human emotions that we experience. The only people who don't experience shame lack the capacity for empathy and human connection. So here's your choice. Fess up to experiencing shame or admit that you're a sociopath. We all have shame. I never do this, but look at your neighbor and say, I have shame. Okay, if your neighbor just looked you in the eye and said, I'm a sociopath, (laughs) you might want to switch seats. Like, I won't judge you. I think a lot of people did that, actually, from some of those laughs there. All right, so here's the deal. We're going to look at Genesis 3. As we do, we're going to look at three key things. We're going to look at what we lost, how we try to regain it, and how God gives it back. What we lost, how we try to regain it, and what, how God gives it back. Through all of this, we're going to see one beautiful truth. We serve a God who longs to cover our shame. So if you're able, we like to stand for the reading of God's word out of respect. Genesis 3, actually let's back up and go Genesis 2.25. There didn't used to be chapter titles and spaces and all that stuff, and so this all just flowed together. Genesis 2.25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did, you really, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit of the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Their eyes were indeed opened. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was afraid, or because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then we're going to fast forward just a little bit. But right here you see God giving the curses, the consequences of sin. But I want you to note too that before he ever gives any kind of punishment for man or woman, in Genesis 3.15, he already promises that a Messiah is going to come and set them free from these consequences. Looking now at verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So the first part, let's talk about what we lost. What did Adam and Eve lose as a result of this chapter of the Bible, this decision in their lives? 
give you a little spoiler, they lost intimacy. And they gained shame in its place. Look at 2.25 with me. Now they were both naked and they knew no shame. We're going to talk a little bit about what shame is and then we're going to talk about nakedness. When's the last sermon on nakedness you heard? When the senior pastor is out of the country, the interesting sermons just start flying out here. So what's shame? I think every one of us in this room have heard the term. Could you define it? What's shame? What's the difference, moreover, between shame and guilt? Give you a little fun fact. Theologians and researchers have said that as much as the Bible talks about guilt, it talks about shame ten times as much. Let me give you, it's an oversimplification, but the difference here, guilt says, I just did something bad. I've done bad. Shame says, I am bad. Do you hear the difference there? One is an action The other is internalized, a feeling about yourself that you're somehow bad or corrupted. Guilt makes you want to apologize and repent. Shame makes you want to hide. Let me give you an example. If you're sitting at home and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, I hurt that person's feelings today. Guilt says, I should call them. Shame says, that's all you ever do is hurt people. You're just a big screw-up. They probably hate you now. Guilt is appeased by repentance and forgiveness. Shame is that feeling that just lingers after the fact. Have you ever had this experience? You, You sin and you cry out to God and you repent and you cling to the cross and you experience his forgiveness, but you still kind of feel like crap afterwards. You feel like you've got to work it off. You've somehow got to pay for your sins. That leftover feeling, that residual feeling that you have, that's shame. And I would argue that's not from the Lord. Shame is that deep voice that you hear inside of you that makes you feel like you're an outcast. You just don't belong. Everyone else fits in but you. That makes you feel naked when everyone else is clothed. Makes you vulnerable. Like people see everything that you have and what they see just is not pretty or likable. Biblically speaking, you feel unclean. Like something's wrong with you. You're defiled, you're corrupted, you're dirty and contaminated. Shame comes from our sinful choices, no doubt. But that's not the only place that shame comes from. Let me give you a couple more here. Shame comes from other people. Comes but from our associations. When I was a child, um, I grew up with a dad who was an alcoholic, drug addict, and felon. And I can remember feeling immense shame when I realized that none of my other friends had to hide their money so their dad wouldn't steal it. When I realized that none of my other friends had to go hungry because they knew that if they said, Dad, I want something to eat, they'd have to spend the next 10 hours sitting at the local dive bar. I felt shame, like something's wrong with me for having a father like this. Let me give you another example, abuse, particularly sexual abuse. You want to witness how the infection of shame just spreads in a person's life. 
Watch when a child or an adult gets the message that someone else's sexual gratification is more important than their protection, their trust, their innocence. I think another way shame comes is it just comes from who we are. It doesn't just come from our sinful choices. It doesn't come from other people. It just comes from nakedness. We look at ourselves in the mirror. We look at what's inside of our hearts and we just feel like something isn't right. Something doesn't measure up. We don't like what's underneath and we feel like people would reject us if they saw it. We're not tall enough, attractive enough. Your nose is too big. Your calves are too small. We don't have enough hair. Imagine being a 21-year-old college guy and having your hair retreat like a frightened army from your forehead straight down your back and settle in an encampment right at the top. (laughs) Nothing says, let's go to the beach like that. (laughs) This is not from experience at all. (laughs) Purely hypothetical here, guys. We have physical things about ourselves that we don't like. But it's not just physically. We feel like we're not talented enough. We're not funny enough. We're not cool enough, well-dressed enough, likable enough. Shame is the fear of disconnection. We long to have people really know us, but we feel like if they really knew us, they'd reject us. We feel unworthy of that connection and that intimacy that we long for. Biblically, we see this all over. The unclean. Right? They're separated from the community because of sin or illness, made to live off in the outskirts. Barrenness. When you desperately want kids, and we see it in Scripture where people want kids and everyone around them is having them, but they can't seem to be able to. The unloved or rejected spouse. I think of Jacob and Leah, who Leah just longed to be loved. David's daughter, who's raped by her brother. Shame is everywhere in the pages of Scripture. In fact, I think shame is everywhere in our culture, too. I think a lot of our marriages reflect this. I quoted Brene Brown. Let me quote her one more time. She says, when I talk to couples, I can see how shame creates one of the dynamics most lethal to a relationship. Women who feel shame when they don't feel heard or validated often resort to pushing or provoking with criticism. Men, in turn, who feel shame when they feel criticized for being inadequate either shut down leading women to poke and provoke more or come back in anger. Am I hitting home at all? Not just for the married couples in the room, but for all of us, we have shame. In fact, I'd love to give you guys a second just to identify maybe a few key areas in your life where shame appears. Do you have that slide, if you could throw it up there? These are a couple of the words that are common to the experience of shame. It's not enough. I don't fit, I'm inferior, not good enough, broken, vulnerable, less valuable than others, contaminated, disliked, weak, worthless. I'm going to leave that up for a minute and you guys are welcome to look at it and really seek your heart and say, where does shame live within me? While you're doing that, look at 225 again, the passage. They were naked and they knew no shame. I want you guys to note shame is the first 
emotion explicitly mentioned in the Bible. It's not joy, it's not contentment, it's shame. It tells us how primary this is to the story. But also note that the first emotion was the absence of this. Adam and Eve didn't understand any of these words on the screen. They wouldn't have gotten it. Adam and Eve were shameless, running around in the garden, butt naked all day, shameless. We see that as a negative thing in our society. I'm not advocating we take our clothes off here. Let me say that. But the shamelessness that they had was beautiful. They had nothing to hide. They didn't have any worry that if someone just found out what I just did, they'd reject me because they hadn't done anything wrong. Nothing wrong had ever happened to them. It was beautiful. So instead... What did they have? They had not just physical nakedness, more than that. They had vulnerability. They had intimacy. Perfect relationship. Perfect acceptance. Perfect openness. You can't have intimacy without emotional vulnerability and nakedness. You just can't because you'll always think if people knew this about me, that I'm hiding, they'd reject me. I don't think we can grasp how beautiful this shameless nakedness look like for them. I think the only thing that I can say that's even close is imagine in your mind with me, who are the people in your life who you can just completely be yourself with? You don't have to filter, you don't have to hide, you can just let your hair back and be yourself. Maybe it's with a best friend, maybe it's with a spouse or significant other, or family member. No matter who it is, I guarantee they're some of the most treasured people in your life. Why? we all long to be known, to be seen, and yet to be accepted and loved. We long to be loved despite our inadequacies, not just because we hid them really well. Vulnerability and nakedness are God's intent for the world. It's how he created it. In our world, we view it as a negative thing, like I said, but it's what we're made for, to be perfectly exposed, yet perfectly accepted. I think deep down, the garden is still written on all of our hearts. How do I know this? Let me give you an example. Rod and a team of 30 to 40 people are in Turkey right now. Let's do a little thought experiment here. Not even a thought experiment. Let's do an experiment here. They're not going to listen to the podcast. They're literally climbing mountains and studying all day long, every day. So they're not going to hear this. When you get back, when they get back, I want you to ask them. Ask them about their trip. My guess is that as wonderful as it is to be in Turkey, Greece, and Rome, the thing that they're going to gush about is the community. Being sweaty, being dirty, being smelly, no makeup on, hair is just pulled back, Physical limitations on full display and yet being known and loved and accepted, cherished. It's what Rod calls insula on his trips, family, household. It's what we all long for. Even if you haven't been on that trip, I'm sure that you've experienced it in your life. When I used to be a youth pastor, I used to love taking youth trips because students would begin to open up about things that they normally wouldn't. And I'd watch them flourish when they'd receive acceptance and love for being known instead of rejection. 
family vacations where you go on with your friends and your family and it may be not always the best and uh, the most beautiful thing, but you're doing it together. Maybe it's the friend group from college that knows all your quirks, all your idiosyncrasies, but they love you. Maybe it's going to see a counselor, sharing your darkest, most ugly things that you just know someone would reject you for, and yet the counselor doesn't get up and run. They love you more for opening up. We're made for nakedness. Really, we're made for intimacy. It's what the garden was. Look at verse 8 with me. Then the man and his wife heard the sound. That word there is kol in Hebrew. Almost always it's translated voice. The voice of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But when the Lord called to the man, where are you? What was the sound Adam and Eve heard? It's probably a sound they heard every single day. Sound that they knew extremely well. The sound of God's voice echoing throughout the garden. Picture this. Your creator. The God who fashioned you, informed you, calling you just to make a few laps around the garden with him in the cool of the day. The way that this is written implies this is a regular thing. Probably daily. God didn't wait till after the fall to show up in the garden. Adam and Eve heard the sound that they probably heard every night, maybe every morning too. The very voice of God just inviting them to take an evening stroll. Imagine the intimacy they must have experienced. I have a two-month-old daughter. I can't can't help it. My hands just do this. I did it in the first service too. Like this is my daughter right here. When I come home, I get to hold her and I look at her and she smiles and she's excited to see me. She just wants to spend time even at two months old. What kind of joy, what kind of anticipation do you think Adam and Eve felt to get to walk with their creator, talk about the day, talk about the beautiful things that he made? The almighty God who fashioned them in in his image wanted intimacy with them. But not this night. It doesn't go quite that same way. Adam and Eve's sin cost them the worst trade in human history. They lost the perfect intimacy of the garden and they gained shame to replace it. They lost perfect relationship and intimacy and they gained shame. It's the worst trade and like when you make a bad trade, you'll do anything to undo it. Adam and Eve try several different things to undo it. Let's look at them right now. This is the part of the sermon where you see Adam and Eve trying to fix it. How do I regain what I lost? Put me at verse 7. You see several different responses. They hide, they cover, they blame. What's sad, though, is that most of us in this room, we're still recycling thousands of years later those same three tools, those same three excuses. Verse 7 says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Stop here. I want you guys to realize this. Adam and Eve had always been naked, right? They came out of the womb. They lived in the garden, booty butt naked the whole time. Did we not say that? Sorry. Maybe that's just around my house. Um, They were naked. They always had been naked. What changed? Their perception of what nakedness meant. While they were always naked, they suddenly felt now exposed, contaminated, vulnerable. 
And their first reaction is just look around, grab anything that I can to try to cover up. Today we're no different. We have 21st century fig leaves that we're constantly grabbing to try to cover up and block our shame. Let me give you a few examples. Performance. The West Michigan way, right? Do a good job. And maybe people won't notice these other things about you. Maybe it's something even smaller than that. Be a good dancer and people won't notice that you're not athletic. Be a great employee. Work really hard at your job and maybe people won't notice that you're a lousy spouse or a lousy parent. But we don't just use performance. We use power. Be really, really strong and maybe people won't know that you feel really weak inside. Clothing and appearance. Maybe if you dress like you have it all together, people won't see that you're falling apart inside. Personality. You walk into a room and you immediately size everybody up and you say, what do they want me to be? Because if I can do that, then if they reject me, they're not really rejecting the real me. They're rejecting this false me. So you flash a little humor, a little charm. You use smile to hide the shame that's underneath. We try to mask and cover our shame with a hundred different things. Let me give you one more example. We lie. I know everybody tries to act like they never shade the truth. They never do that kind of thing. But next time you're tempted to embellish something, withhold something, to shade something, I want you to ask yourself why. There's always a reason. Maybe it's fear of disappointing or hurting somebody. Maybe it's convenience. I'm guessing for a lot of us, It's shame. We're trying to cover our shame. Let me give you an example. Early on in my marriage, way, way, way back there, certainly not still recently, when Gabe and I would go places, I would always drive, and I still do, and um, I'm ADD. I get distracted. It's amazing how, like, a song on the radio can just distract me, and sometimes I'll do really dumb maneuvers. So if you see me on the road, watch out. But sometimes I'll do something dumb and my wife, like let's say hypothetically I pull out in front of a car, my wife will yell out hypothetically, I, look out, what are you doing? And I'll immediately find myself looking for a way to make that maneuver okay. And so I'll look in the mirror and I'll be like, oh wait, they, they just turned. Why are you so upset, sweetie? Like it was clear that they were turning back there. And my wife, who never lets me get away with anything, will be like, how did you know that? They didn't use their blinker. And I'll just immediately want to start shading it and be like, well, you could tell like the car was swinging out, like I'm some kind of expert on the body language of blinkerless cars. <laughs> or I'll get really creative and it's like, well, you saw the guy, like he was clearly a Tim Hortons guy. He was turning in there. Like that dude needed some coffee and some Timbits if I've ever seen anybody. Why? Why do I want to shade the truth here? Why do I want to cover over my mistakes? Because to be wrong is too risky. To my wife, this is just like a guilt situation. She's like, just apologize and move on. But to me, it's much, much deeper than that. To me, I feel like I've just revealed that I'm inadequate at keeping my wife and my child and our property safe, incompetent to be driving, and so I can't be wrong. I've got to find a way that this wasn't my fault got to find a way to cover over it. We fall into the same trap as Adam and Eve. 
And here's the trap. Adam and Eve had perfect love, perfect acceptance, perfect intimacy, everything that we crave while they were naked, exposed, and fully real. But after sin entered the world, we bought the biggest lie of all. And here's that lie. Instead of realizing that real love and acceptance only comes when we're intimate and vulnerable and exposed, we now believe that the only way that I can have love is if I cover up the parts of myself that I don't like. If I withhold the parts that I think that you'll reject. Did you catch that? Let me say it maybe a little bit differently. A lack of vulnerability and emotional nakedness is the enemy of intimacy. It's the breeding ground for shame. But sadly, most of us in this room believe the only way that we can experience intimacy, the only way that we can experience acceptance is if we cover up the stuff about ourselves that we don't like or we think other people wouldn't like. Guys, we got to drop the coverings, the fig leaves, or we'll never experience what we were created for. Look at verse 10. We'll see another strategy they did. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. He's talking to God because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Hiding is just like covering. We do it all the time. When I first came on staff at Crossroads, came on and I was an intern and I was doing some of the finances and that, and we have a lot of competent people here. And I remember sitting at these tables and we'd be discussing different things and I would be like, I just don't have anything to offer like these other people do. And the more that that thought came in that I didn't have as much to offer, the quieter and the quieter and the quieter that I got in those meetings. Why? Because I thought, maybe if I don't speak, they won't notice that I don't have as good of insights. Maybe if I don't speak, they won't notice that I really don't fit here or measure up. Some of us in this room are hiders. We walk around and our heart is just like, don't notice me, don't notice me, don't notice me. can see when a person experiences shame from a mile away. What's the physical response? The eyes hit the floor. The hand covers the face. Hiding. It's the first response we experience to shame. But there's still others. Let me give you one more. Adam and Eve don't stop at two. They go for the the trinity of shame here. Look at verse 11. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then God said to the woman, who, why have you, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, no, 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 it was, it was a serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. What do you see here? What's the third response? Blame. I don't see Adam and Eve just owning up like, yeah, I did that. I'm really sorry, God. Shame always makes us look for a scapegoat. Someone else, something else, because if it's their fault, even just a little, then maybe I can let myself off the hook some too. We don't just blame other people though. At our worst, we'll blame anything. Watch me on the basketball court sometimes. If I'm really having an off day, whew, it can get ugly there. It's like, oh, my knee, 
Ooh, did I tell you I tore my ACL, MCL, and meniscus? Same time. I used to be a high jumper in high school. I'd be dunking out here if it wasn't for that. Oh, these shoes, these are new. Is this court regulation? My goodness, that's a foul. That basket's a little crooked, I swear. It just, those would be going in if not. Why? Because deep down when I'm having a rough day, I fear that I'm less than because of my inadequacies, because of my missed shots, my botched rebounds, whatever it is, deep down I fear that I'm just not as good as other people and I don't fit in. Their strengths are all on display. They're hitting jump shots and I'm sitting there. They're clothed and I'm naked, exposed for everyone to see that I'm just not as good. When we blame, we're still responding to shame the exact same way as Adam and Eve. Why do you feel the need to make excuses in your life? What area makes those excuses just kind of well right up where you look to blame somebody? What are you worried about people? What are you worried that people would reject if they really knew or saw in you? What makes you look for a scapegoat? I will say, in fairness to Americans here, we have evolved a little bit. We've got a couple new ones that I don't see Adam and Eve doing. So let me give you a couple American strategies for shame. Of course, as Americans, we're a young culture, so we don't call it shame. That's shame cultures. Uh, we call it low self-esteem, right? That's the American way. If you go and you talk to someone about low self-esteem or shame, odds are the first place they're going to start Many counselors, many coaches, many just different people in your life, they're going to say, you got to go easy on yourself. You're too hard on yourself. Nobody's perfect. Lower the standards. Only you can decide what's right for you. Only you can judge yourself. In other words, treat your shame like it's not real. The problem? Shame is very, very real. It's like that check engine light on your dash letting us know that there's something wrong. You can't just ignore it. Although in the last service, I heard people laughing and chuckling because I can tell they all just ignore it. But shame is that check engine light on your dash design telling you there's something wrong in here and there's something wrong with the world in which we live. You can't just ignore it and you can't just lower the bar to where the light won't come back on. Just look at the results of our culture did this. We had the sexual revolution not that long ago. Take all restraints off. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's taboo. The only thing that's wrong is not pursuing what you want to do in the moment. It's the craziest thing to me. It's like, let's fight shame by, let's try to get out of the hole by going deeper into the hole. It makes no sense. And evidence says that it just didn't work. It doesn't work. That's why our society is steeped in anxiety and depression and shame. So when that doesn't work, what else do we do as good Americans? Well, low self-esteem. You need to boost that ego. Boosterism. Look in the mirror. Find five things that are special about you. Five things that are amazing. And I want you to say them out loud every single day. But here's what famous psychologist Ed Welch says. The few injections of self-esteem are just such temporary fixes. They may work in the short run for today, but in the long run, all studies and evidence show that they actually backfire. 
It's like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. In the long run, it just makes you more thirsty and more sick. So let me ask you, what are your normal strategies for dealing with shame? You tend to cover, tend to hide, blame. You catch yourself comparing to other people and trying to feel better, make you feel like you're not quite as bad as you worry that you are. Are you a positive self-esteem junkie? The Bible is telling us that these methods will never eradicate shame because they're ultimately still all about us. Freedom from shame can never be found by digging deeper into here or looking out there. We have to stop looking inward or outward and we have to start looking upward if you want to deal with your shame. We can look inside ourselves for some kind of intrinsic worth and freedom or we can look upward and discover a God who bleeds for the unworthy. A God who runs to those who aren't deserving of someone to run after them. Let's look at that. How does God deal with our shame? Look at verse 20 with me. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And here's just a short sentence, but it means a lot. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. He had them take off the fig leaves, and he made for them these garments to cover them. The Lord not only dealt with their guilt in 3.15, he promises that Messiah that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. He's going to undo the curse. He's going to set us free and bring forgiveness. But here it shows that God cares about our shame too. And also, if you're paying attention, this is the first death in the Bible and the first sacrifice just have to stop and marvel at the fact that we serve a God who cares about our shame. He cares about our nakedness. We sinned, we stained ourselves, we stained his perfect world, and yet he responds and even points us forward to the ultimate sacrifice that's gonna take away all of our guilt and shame. Because not only does our creator care about our shame, he deeply understands our shame. You see, the creator God allowed himself to become the shamed one for us. Jesus becomes naked and exposed. Jesus becomes spit on and reviled. He becomes shamed, hanging on a tree, rejected and utterly alone. Jesus becomes our shame so that he can cover our shame. His blood washes away every stain, wrinkle, and blemish. Can you put that slide back up there if you don't mind? Let me tell you the secret to letting God cover your shame. I'll give you a hint. What do all these have in common? They all start with the letter I. Every one of them. In fact, I highlighted it a different color just so you can see it. Who's the hero here? Who's the focus on? Where's your attention going? We have to lift our gaze off of ourselves and put it onto him. We have to. We don't have hope. Pick any one of these statements. I don't fit. 
There's a couple different ways you can try to deal with this. You feel like a misfit. You can look for all the ways that you do fit in. Well, but at work, you kind of fit in. Or when you go home and your family, you kind of fit in. But the problem is your focus is on you and it's on fitting in. And so every time that you feel a little bit of rejection, it will remind you that you can't fit in with everybody. You can't fit into every social circle. You're always going to feel like a bit of a misfit. Or you can accept it. I'm a misfit. But I serve a God who loves misfits. Serve a God who runs to the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and who dines with them. And in his kingdom, I fit. If you believe you're worthless, it's likely because you spend too much time thinking about yourself, comparing yourself to other people and trying to find your value there. You need to look to the heavens to a God in whose image you're fashioned in. He loves you. He cares about you. He was willing to die to be with you for all eternity. Psalm 25 says it this way, no one whose hope is in the Lord will ever be put to shame. Our shame is that warning light on the dashboard saying, warning, your hope is in something other than God. And that something, whatever it is, can't deliver. So here's what I want to challenge you with today. Today, maybe it's time to stop hiding. Maybe it's time to stop faking it. Maybe it's time to stop asking, who does everyone else want me to be? Maybe it's time to stop acting like we have it all together, escaping to the bottle, the screen, relationships, to try to feel better about ourselves. Running to them whenever that voice whispers inside of our head, you're not enough. Instead, I want to challenge you to look to him. If you don't know how to do that or you don't know the effect that God can have in your life, I'd love to talk to you. In fact, there's any staff or elders that want to come up, I'm sure that they would love to talk to you too after the service. Let me just close with this. God asks Adam, who told you you were naked? Whose voice have you been listening to? And today I want to ask you, whose voice told you these things? Who told you all those things up there on the screen? Was it the voice in your head? Was it that neighbor down the street who doesn't like you? Was it society that says that you're not what you should be? Or was it the voice of the Lord who tells you he loves you? He gave himself for you. Gave himself as a sacrifice to cover all your shame. Many of us have listened to other voices our entire lives. Listen to this voice. But today is as good a day as any to say, Lord, I want to repent of that. Help me to hear your voice and know how it is that you see me. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would speak. God, that you would open our eyes to the countless places in your word where you are the lifter of our heads, the coverer of our shame. God, I think of just Jesus, you, when you came and when you touched the leper who was unclean, an outcast, he couldn't be around other people, and when you touched him, 
It said, as a result, he was able to go into the temple courts and be healed and be around all these people. But it says also, as a result, Jesus, you were forced to go out into the lonely places and the desolate places. I thank you, Jesus, that you are a God who takes our shame. You're a God who knows shame and you know how to cover it. I pray that you would cover it in our hearts, that you would just stop the other voices and help us to focus in on yours. For all this in Jesus' precious and holy and healing name, amen. He did. He washed it white as snow. I was just sitting down there and I was thinking about something really practical I want to leave you guys with. Um, 2 Corinthians 7. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians that we don't have. And in it he found out it made him really, really sad. And he writes saying, when I found out that you were sad, it made me sad. And I regretted that I had sent it. And then I realized that your sorrow was godly sorrow and not worldly sorrow. And what I think he's getting at there is the difference between guilt and shame because he says then godly sorrow brings, brings you to life and repentance, but worldly sorrow just brings death. And so what I want to say is in your heart when you experience conviction, when you experience the voice that's going on, if it's something that's leading you towards repentance, leading you towards life, that's conviction. Honor it. It's meant to be there for a reason. It's a good thing. But if it's something that's just bringing sorrow and death and getting you preoccupied, focusing only on yourself, leave it. Leave it today. That's not the voice of the Lord. He loves you and he knows you. You're made in his image and he died to cover your shame. Let's take that message to our own hearts to our families, to our street corners, to our cities. Go in peace, Crossroads.